clock is proclaiming that it's creature o'clock. So ring that buzzer. It sounds like a lion roar. And open the door to join us for the 30th meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I'm a woolly sheep looking to debut her summer bod, Meredith. And I'm lemur curious Mike. And we meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station. To talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. So saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom animalia. What's up, Mike? Oh, you know, Meredith, just really sitting around the house. Samesies. I will say, and I guess this would be like a good segue into my week in animals. So I've been venturing out to the park. It's pretty much the only place I will go when I go outside. I will say it's it's quite the creature encounter to go there when I especially when I really have my my eyes open to it because yesterday I was there with the intention of like reading my academic crap but I was just so distracted by just the general going like wildlife goings-ons in the park because there's like man-made waterfall like pond kind of thing in Morningside Park. That park. Not I was going to ask, you don't go to Central Park. I do sometimes, but Morningside is like on the way to Central Park and it's quite beautiful. Is that the one that goes like right by the cathedral and everything? Is that Morningside Park? Yeah, on the other side of the cathedral. That cathedral's gorgeous. It's so big and in certain parts of the park you like look up like the craggy hill, and you see like the backside of the cathedral. Very Renaissance. It's beautiful. It really is incredible. I was just sitting like out in front of the pond, and I was watching. There's like a whole group of feral cats that like hang out in like the craggy rock area. So I was like watching them kind of like be little mountain goats up there. And then there was some like drama. Just the pigeons were just kind of grazing around doing their thing. And then there was like this teenage starling that was like amongst them, just squawking at all of them. Just so angry. I don't know what he was so displeased about, but the pigeons are just like minding their own business. And you just like run up to him and be like, ah, ah. <laughs> like chill, dude. What else? Oh, I saw a hawk yesterday up in the trees. I'm sure that's like good hawk eaten in Morningside Park. But yeah. And then it's just like the place is just lousy with birds. I stopped to kind of tune my ears into it. And it's just loud. Like the amount of just quotidian tweeting is just off the charts. Yeah. You just kind of tune your mind into it and like really start looking at the wildlife. It's There's a ton there. And I sent you the picture of the raccoon I saw the other day. That's right. I remember. It's just hanging out. Very cute. I remember that vividly. I have to say that I've been reading some articles about the wildlife in New York taking over. Yeah. And I've seen that the rat population is very hungry and very adventurous. Oh, no. The rat population doesn't have the same source of food. Right. Because there are less restaurant dumpsters available. Yep. And there's less trash cans filled with rice and beans and all that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. So apparently the rats have been getting a little bit bolder and been swarming trash cans and hiding in vehicles and engines of vehicles and cars and all this kind of stuff. So the rats have gone a little wild. Oh, gosh. You know what this all feels like? It feels like the movie I Am Legend. 
legend where nature just aggressively takes over the city after a relatively short period of time. Yeah. I've actually never seen it, but I've seen like the some of the imagery associated with it. And yeah, I kind of love that, that nature just waits for nothing and it just gets right back in there. Yeah. I saw a huge, like, I don't even know what the term of venery for wild boars would be, but there was just this like stampede of wild boars across the street in Berlin, I think. Like mommies and babies and just boars of all sizes just taken to the streets just strutting their wild boar stuff yeah yeah on their little high-heeled feet we all know from who's hoofs that boars look kind of look like they're wearing little high heels i love who's hooves. i do too we kind of say it a lot around the apartment it just kind of comes up and be like who's hooves. as soon as you said it to me i had the idea for the bumper in my head like immediately <laughs> so good very- that was a very fast one to pull together. I love it. You know, rats are a nice kind of seg for us into a little correction corner that I have. Uh-oh. Last week I spoke on rats, cockroaches, and pigeons, and we've confirmed that pigeons are birds. Yes, we have. I independently confirmed that rats are murine, and they're, you know, of the genus Rattus. Okay, but then I also confirmed that cockroaches are, in fact, not Coleoptera. Cockroaches are not beetles. I repeat, I would like to apologize to all beetles everywhere, Whoa. 40% of all described insects. Yep. My bad. I didn't mean to associate the cockroach with you. They're actually insects of the order Blatodia, which also includes termites. Okay. There's about 4,600 species of cockroaches, but only about 30 are associated with our habitats. Oh, wow. About four of those are known as pests. When I had to take, like, get my food handler certification in New York City, there's like, when you're studying all the random literature they give you um, to go take the test, there's like this whole lesson on like different species of cockroaches. Yeah, the German ones are really common. German ones. I think there was like a Norwegian winged cockroach or something. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, oh my God, creature facts for my food handlers and mental hygiene tests. So silly. I do have a little bit of a mind-blowing fact is that roaches are in the same super order with mantids. Interesting. Yeah, Dictyopatera is mantids and roaches. And you said that was a super order. It's a super order, yeah. Kingdom phylum class, super order, order. Super order, order. Yeah. Family genus species. Interessante. Mantises are way cooler than roaches. Sorry. I'm sorry. They just have such different morphology, too, that I find it very interesting. Yeah, they really do. They're so angular. And then I also had a bit of a revelation, which is more geographical. I know this isn't a geography podcast. Hell no. I realized that Tasmania is kind of like the Madagascar of Australia. Yes, it is. And then you can carry it further. Like Crete is the Madagascar of Greece. Uh Sri Lanka is the Madagascar of India. Sicily is the Madagascar of Italy. The Florida Keys are the Madagascar of the United States. Totally. Or maybe like Cuba, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic. Maybe that's more the Madagascar of the United States. I don't know. Very interesting. Yeah, let us know. Write in. Animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Let us know whether you think the Florida Keys are the Madagascar of the United States or it's more like Cuba, the Antilles. That's the Madagascar of the United States. This is where it gets a little confusing, though, not to spend too much time on this, because I believe that Tasmania is not its own country. 
it's part of Australia, which is both a country and a continent. So it gets confusing, whereas Madagascar is its own country associated with the continent of Africa. I guess I'm less interested in the sovereignty of the nations, et cetera, and more interested in the geography. I gotcha. I gotcha. I just remember being corrected, and I was very embarrassed. Remember Dylan at CCM? Yeah. He, I believe, is from Tasmania. He is. I think I referred to it as a country once, and he's like, no, it's it's Australia is the country. Yeah, yeah, Dylan Sheridan. That's actually why I came up with this, because he came up in another call. And I was like, you know, Tasmania is kind of like the Madagascar of Australia. And then that just ended up in a whole swamp rabbit's nest of, well, what are the other Madagascars? Geography for you and me. That was a pretty nice song, Meredith. Thank you. Well, on that note, let's get into what we're here for. Which is definitely not geography. Yeah, I say let's just maybe kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer. Let's do it. Ready? Okay. Texana you. Texana we. Texana who? Texana me. Kingdom. Animalia. It's a mall of America. Phylum. Cordata. Spine times the right time. Class. Reptilia. Tetrapods. Herpetology. Order. Testudines. It's a turtle, Myrtle. Family. Amididae. Pawn. Turtles. Genus. Chrysemus. Only one extant species. Species. Picta. The painted turtle. The most widely spread native turtle of North America. Oh, I love turtles! I know you do, Meredith. I have to confess to you that I did not research my animal until 2 a.m., last night this morning of us recording so about 12 hours ago nine hours ago i don't know time's a social construct it really is especially right now it's been recently discovered that strangers with candy is available to stream (gasps) oh this is why okay somebody else brought this up the other day talking about strangers with candy and i was like oh that's cool because i have the dvds that i watch I've just accessed it that way. But where is it streaming so other people can tune in? Amazon. Amazing. Amazon Prime Video. That makes it so much easier than having to bust out the DVDs. Yeah, that is if you're a Prime subscriber. Right. Okay. This is amazing. I I just want to like talk about the connection here, but this is your report. So (laughs) perhaps you are more of a scholar on Strangers with Candy. I literally wrote a paper for a jazz history class about an episode of Strangers with Candy. Amazing. In one of the first episodes, we're introduced to Jerry Blank's pet, Shelly, who's a turtle. Yes. And it showed a close-up of Shelly. <laughs> and I was like, I remember those. Those are painted turtles. And I am still kind of, you know, in the way that much of the country is on pause, so is my mollusk journey. Okay. It's fine. I know what I want to do next, at least. I need to start researching more than 10 hours out from the episode to like really do the mollusk justice. Yeah, with those, well, for the non-vertebrate phylum or the non-chordata phylum, we just have to know it takes a lot more uh, work on the front end. You're just going to be diving into a completely different pond. Where there may be a pond turtle. We've just both learned this the hard way that you can't cram for the non-chordatas, y'all. Yeah, it's definitely true. We used to call them alternative phylums, but I think that we've revised our lexicon. Yes. So, again, just a quick disclaimer. I am neither a herpetologist nor a testudinologist, so... 
I'm <laughs> definitely not an expert, but this is just a quick little survey of my turtle facts. We're going to start with tax facts. We got kingdom animalia. We know that. Phylum chordata. They got spines. Class reptilia. They're cold-blooded. They're tetrapods, which means they have four legs. I know what you're thinking, Meredith. What about snakes? Yeah. But even snakes evolved from having four legs. Okay. So they used to have legs, but they don't anymore. Now they're just abs with a face. Right. I thought this was interesting that reptiles are not a clade, so they're not monophyletic. Okay, meaning, because I had to get into this, meaning they don't have a single ancestor. Right. That's the definition of clade, is that they have a single ancestor. For example, crocodiles are more closely related to birds than they are to lizards. Okay. Which is interesting, because I have thought of a crocodile as a lizard, but it's not really a lizard. It's a crocodilian. Right. And crocodilians are more closely related to birds than lizards. This is one of those things where it's like, oh, yeah, that breaks down every consideration I've ever had. But then you kind of look into it a little bit and you start to see that uh, that other creatures that you maybe thought were monophyletic or in a clade, like mammals are the only extant creatures in that same clade, but there are other creatures that are in the same clade as mammals that we wouldn't classify as mammals. So I just think that right. life is very interesting and complicated. <laughs> sure is. Order testudines. It's a turtle or a tortoise. Then we have what you talked about earlier with your Mata Mata, the suborder. We have the Cryptodira. The difference between the two suborders, the Cryptodira and then the Pleurodira, is how their head folds into their body. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because you got the retractable heads and then the ones that kind of like fold laterally, I guess, to the side. Yeah, just to the side. They fold sideways. So the Cryptodira, the head kind of retracts into itself. Mm-hmm. And the Pleurodira, the head folds sideways. So it's kind of of a showers and growers sort of thing. Remember? Yeah. So the Pleurodira, where the head folds sideways, is more like the showers, and the Cryptodira, where the head retracts into itself, is more like the growers. Yes. And so our painted turtle friend is a Cryptodira. Okay. So the head folds into itself. Yes. Then we get to the family Amidae, and that's pond turtles, aka marsh turtles, aka terrapins. Mm-hmm. And then that family breaks down the subfamily is Dirochylinae. Sorry on the pronunciation, but the subfamily is where it becomes the turtles of North and South America. Okay. Okay. And then we get to our genus, the Chrysemis, and our species Picta. It's the only extant species of that genus. I think it's the only species on record of that genus. Quick question. Is this also what's called a box turtle? It's different than a box turtle. I've probably been calling Painted turtles, box turtles my whole life. Probably. Incorrectly. Yeah. Yeah. The box turtle is in the same family. Okay. But a different subfamily. Interesting. Same family, different subfamily. Right. Okay. I would say the box turtle's shell is higher. More domey. Yeah, more domey, more boxy. The painted turtle is maybe a little bit more sleeker. They have very similar habitats. I'm looking them up now. Oh, okay. I'm see- yeah, yeah, sorry. Go the ahead. painted turtle is the one that has the kind of like it looks like it's painted, you know? It has like uh markings on it. Yeah, so not so much on the shell, but on it on its actual body. Right. Its flesh is where like the stripes are. Whereas the box turtle has the little like 
markings on the actual shell. Yeah, I'm not super familiar with the box turtle. But this is a... Okay, so my painted turtle, it has olive to black skin with red, orange, and yellow stripes on its extremities, like on its limbs and its head. And then there are four subspecies, the eastern, midland, southern, and western. And they can be distinguished by their shells. Okay. The midland, which is the one that's from where we would have grown up, it doesn't really have that many Uh markings on its shells. Okay. The southern has a red line on the top shell. And then the western one has this really beautiful pattern on its plastron. That almost looks like a kind of Keith Herring moment. That's fun. And the plastron is the undershell. The carapace is the back shell. And then the front ventral side shell, the chest shell, is called the plastron. Mm -hmm. So it'd be like if I got like one of those Keith Haring like yellow babies tattooed on my belly. That's exactly what it would be like. And I have been playing this computer game called Civilization. That's how I've been spending my quarantine recently. Uh In it, one of the things that you can do is create a religion. So I did, and when I was choosing the icon for the religion, one of the options was this kind of turtle image. Yes. And so naturally I selected that, and then you could choose the name for your religion, so I chose the name Plastron. (laughs) Yes. So right now the religion of Plastron is kind of doing a sort of religious war with Hinduism. Uh. It's a really complicated game. Gandhi has the strongest military might in my current spawn which is very interesting that is interesting so back to the turtle our painted turtle friends will eat aquatic vegetation algae it will eat small water creatures like insects crustacean and fish they'll hunt along the Mm -hmm. bottom of the water and will agitate vegetation to send little tasty treats out into the open water where it will chase the treats down and eat them. Mm-hmm. It will hold large prey in its mouth and use its forefeet to tear the food apart. Vicious. This creature is very well researched because it's so abundant. And actually, I saw some writing that yeah. it can't be sold unless it was used in a scientific study or something like that. So there's a loophole for the sale of these creatures. So I think that and their abundance hmm. and their familiarity has just led to them being studied extensively. And the Wikipedia article about them, sometimes it feels like each sentence was written by a different person. Yeah. And there's a lot of repetition and there's lots of really interesting studies. We'll get into some of them. So as adults, they have pretty good protection from predators because of their shells. They'll still be hunted by alligators, ospreys, crows, red-shouldered hawks, bald eagles, and especially raccoons. Oh, The babies and the eggs are much more vulnerable. They'll be consumed by a long list of creatures, including crows, chipmunks, squirrels, skunks, groundhogs, raccoons, badgers, gray and red foxes, humans, water bugs, bass, (laughs) catfish, bullfrogs, snapping turtles, rat rice, rice rats, herons, weasels. They'll defend themselves by kicking, scratching, biting, or urinating. And then they can write themselves if they're flipped upside down. Yeah, that's like one of the saddest things to me is seeing any kind of animal like flipped over on its back and it's just kind of squirming. Mm. It always like really bums me out. For sure. So helpless. It's such a simple upending that can really like fuck things up. The animal can't flip back over. Yeah, it's a little sad. Very sad. But these painted turtle friends can flip themselves over. So cry not. Phew. They're cold-blooded, so they get 
their energy from the sun. They need to bask for long hours on logs or rocks. During the winter, they will hibernate, which is crazy. So what they do is they swim to the bottom of water bodies and they dig into the mud and then they'll hibernate for as long as October to March. Like they don't come up? They don't come up at all. They don't breathe. What? They might get some oxygen through its skin, depending on particular conditions, but they have adaptation in their blood chemistry, brain, heart, and particularly in their shell that allow the turtle to survive an extreme buildup of lactic acid that comes from its oxygen deprivation, which is crazy. That is nuts. It's always so weird when like these common creatures that, you know, we see all the time. It was like similar to the love dart. These are just the most common North American creatures. You can see them anywhere, but they're engaging in some of the most insane, complex biological processes. It's pretty nuts. And then they can also travel pretty far, which I thought was interesting. They've done tag and release studies where they'll capture individuals, tag them and release them and then capture them again. Mm Mm-hmm. And males travel up to 16 miles between captures. Oh. Females up to five miles and juveniles one to two miles. And they have noticed that some of this distribution has to do with breeding season. Okay. An example of the silly science that they've done, or I guess maybe the complete science that they've done, is that they can take these turtles and then transport them up to four miles away and the turtle will find its way home. Oh, which is crazy. So you can blindfold a turtle, transport them four miles, release them, and they will still make it home. One experiment took 98 turtles varying distances from home and 41 of them return. Oh my gosh. It's pretty wild. It shows that they have some sense of direction that maybe we don't completely understand. Like a homing device or something. Yeah, but they are very, very, very studied. Meredith, we're on to your favorite section turtle romance oh we know all about this (laughs) turtles will mate in the spring and autumn and they typically reach maturity two to nine years for males and six to 16 years for female the men will start producing sperm in the early spring once they've basked in the sun to an internal temperature of 17 degrees celsius or 63 degrees fahrenheit you gotta heat the gamete and how Females begin their reproductive cycle in midsummer and ovulate the following spring, I guess, after they hibernate. So for the courtship, the male will follow the female until they meet face to face. (laughs) Then he'll stroke her face and neck with his elongated front claws. And the receptive female will return that same motion. Then the coy little male will retreat from the female. Then he will return and they'll stroke each other again. Then he'll swim away. Then he'll come back again. And they'll repeat that until the lady swims to the bottom of the water. And that's where they copulate. So a little underwater sexy time. Blub, blub. Blub, blub, baby. Oh, I love the the little dance that they do. It's like, stroke, stroke, stroke your face. Learn your face. I want to learn your face. And then swim away. Oh, I want to learn your face again. Forgot what your nose looks like. Swim away. Oh, I just want to touch your cheeks one more time. Let's do this. There was this gem in the writing that the male is smaller than the female and thus not dominant. Oh, 
I like that. Which I think tells us more about the writer of the sentence than that turtle. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. So the lady can store the sperm to be used for up to three clutches in her oviducts. <laughs> and the sperm may remain viable for up to three years. Wow. So she can kind of like hold on to it. She's like her own uh, slowly walking sperm bank. Yeah, she's kind of got this, like, uh, cryo-bank vibe going on. Yeah. (laughs) And then a single clutch may have multiple fathers. Ah. A mommy turtle can have a clutch of eggs, a group of eggs, that can have multiple fathers. That's like a cat. They can give birth to a litter of kittens that have had multiple daddies. Cat daddies. They'll make nests. The females are the only ones that do. They'll dig in the sandy soil using their hind feet and it's kind of vase shaped she'll use her bladder water to lubricate the area as she's digging i think they could just call it urine bladder water is really maybe it's different maybe it's like a different substance it might be comes from a different place she'll dig the nest and then lay the eggs and it's usually over like four hours sometimes she'll hang there for the evening but then she'll return to her home water And they usually lay two clutches per year, but may lay up to five. Okay. After about 80 days, 72 to 80 days in the wild, the eggs will hatch. They'll use their egg tooth to break out of the shell. Offspring will either emerge immediately, or if you're north of an imaginary turtle line from (laughs) Nebraska to New Jersey, the turtles will arrange themselves symmetrically in the nest over winter and then emerge the following spring. In like a synchronized swimming formation? Yeah, apparently. I guess it's more of like a sort of military parade sort of fashion. Like in a little turtle marching band. Oh, okay. So that's adorable. But I have to go back to something. An egg tooth? Yeah, the egg tooth. It's this little protrusion on their beak. Oh. And they use it to break out of the shell. Do they retain this their whole life? I don't believe so. Okay. I don't know the structure of the egg tooth, whether it falls off or grows out, whatever. I don't know that it's truly a tooth, but I don't know about the egg tooth. But I do know that this winter nesting ability is part of the reason why they have a range that extends further north than any other American turtle. They go up into Canada. Wow. And its blood and skin are resistant to freezing, apparently, which is useful because it's in areas that freeze. I mean, it's common in the northern parts of America, you know, where... Yeah, totes. ...of the United States and the southern parts of Canada where snow is common. Right, right, right. So let's just quickly talk about the daily routine of our painted turtle friends. It will start its day at sunrise, emerging from the water to bask for several hours. Once it's warmed for activity, it'll go back into the water to forage. And then the water will cool the turtle down. And once it's chilled, it will (laughs) reemerge for one to two more cycles of basking and feeding. And then at night, the turtle goes to the bottom of the water body or it perches on an underwater object. And that's where it sleeps. Okay, so they sleep underwater. Yeah, which is probably part of the evolution to avoid predators. Oh my gosh, you know what? This is so funny. I didn't mention this earlier. One of the other creatures I always see at the park in that pond are these painted turtles doing exactly what you just described. They go underwater. You see them swimming around, but you also see them just like all over like logs and rocks and things soaking up the sunlight. Yeah, that's how they get warmed up. I love that. So that explains why I always see these turtles sunning themselves on rocks, and then others are just swimming around, having fun. Yeah. Cool. These turtles are commonly known, so 
historically the uh, First Nation, the Native American people, were obviously familiar with the turtle. Right. When the turtle splashes into water, that could be recognized as an alarm of approaching problems. Okay. Is that you hear the turtles jumping into the water so that you think, oh, they've been disturbed. They see a predator. Right. And there's myths about talking turtles like the painted turtle and allies, the snapping turtle and box turtle outwit a village woman. There's other myths about these turtles and everything. I'm sure that's a rich line of inquiry. For sure. And then there's a number of states that have declared it the official reptile. Schools love it. Everybody loves it. It's a very common part of American pop culture. Yeah, who doesn't love a turtle? And then I really only have one more fact for you, and that's that adults in the wild are known to live for more than 55 years. Dang turtle! And the species may be non-aging. What does that mean? Like, I know that sounds like a dumb question, but like, I just... I don't know. I guess I, you know, I'm, I don't know exactly what the non-aging thing is. I'm not sure exactly what it means, but we encountered this situation with other creatures too. I feel like... With the naked mole rat, I feel like you mentioned it. And I was, I was listening to that and I was like, wait, what does that mean actually? Because obviously they grow from like being a tiny baby up to their adult form, but maybe it's after that where there's really no change, say, between like a two-year-old naked mole rat or a two-year-old painted turtle and like a 30-year-old painted turtle or naked mole rat. Maybe there's no way to clearly distinguish like through the deterioration of tissue or something like that. Right. I think in humans, typically the aging process is like a sort of way that the body kind of falls apart a little bit, you know? Right. It seems like non-aging species have a system that kind of controls that, you know? Right. But obviously they can't cheat death forever. They're not immortal. Maybe they just don't have like gray turtle hairs when they finally depart this mortal coil. Right. Yeah. I'm seeing just in a quick Google that the word for it is senescence. Senescence. It's the state of a gradual deterioration of normal functioning. Okay. So I guess that it has a slowed down and even more gradual deterioration of normal functioning. That's so interesting. So like turtles kind of have, they're living the fountain of youth as our naked mole rats. Yeah, man. They've done it. They figured it out. So that's it on my turtle facts. Do you have any questions, concerns, traumas, complaints? I don't love Turtles are so cool. I think we had a painted turtle. It was kind of like a, it wasn't like an official pet, but I think he lived in our backyard for a while. We named him Skippy. Oh, that's a good turtle name. Isn't it? Yeah, we used to have, I think it was actually more box turtles that did this, but we had a really um, substantial like compost heap in our backyard. And the turtles loved it in there. We'd always find turtles just munching on old like watermelon rinds and other various Jurgens family compost treats. That's a good name for a record. <laughs> Jurgens family compost treats. Yeah. I'll take it. It's mine. Fierce. Well, why don't we take a break? Let's do it. Why the long face, Edgar? Oh, Holly. I'm just so famished eating the same bland things day after day after day after day. Nay! Your humans never give you carrot or raisin treats? I get a delicious banana every Friday. I do get an apple at Christmas, but my everyday diet is just so monotonous. 
so dry, so uninspired. Just because I'm a highly adapted hindgut fermenter capable of pulling nutrition out of the driest of grasses doesn't mean I don't value flavor. If you cut me, will I not bleed? Okay, okay, calm down, Edgar. There's certainly no need for your dramatics anymore now that there's Brand Clubby's new Mustangs, flavor enhancers for more exciting equine eats. Whoa! You're telling me that Brand Clubby has once again anticipated my unique horse needs? A horse is a horse, of course, of course, that deserves delicious flavor in every bite. For instance, with Mustang's flavor packs, you can indulge in Mustang Classic, a proprietary blend of zesty herbs and spices specifically geared for our unique horse palates. Just use your big horse teeth and lips to pick up and sprinkle your flavor packet and marvel as your lackluster hay goes from nay to yay. What other kinds of flavors do they offer? Well, Edgar, I just know you will love Clip Clop Chipotle or Bucking Bronco BBQ or Old Mesquite Mare. Holly, I believe you underestimate my highly refined horse tastes. Don't they carry anything a bit more elevated? Oh, excuse me, Edgar. How could I forget I was in the presence of such a high horse? Maybe you would appreciate Mustang's limited edition Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken Bechamel Blend, the newest bespoke offering, which features horse-safe compounds mimicking your favorite forbidden flavors like garlic and dairy. Oh, now that sounds simply divine. I cannot wait to get my hoofs on some of these magical flavor powders. I believe I'm certainly hot to trot for Brand Clubby's Mustangs, flavor enhancers for more exciting equine eats. No need to rein in superior flavor. Get yours today. All right, Meredith, we're back for another Animal Magazines segment where we share animal magazines from our, I don't know, past, I guess. Or just ones that we found online that <laughs> tickled our fancy. So my choice is an animal magazine from my past. Yes. I just have to talk about National Geographic. You know, it's yeah. where I got most of my info growing up. That's where I first encountered bowerbirds mm. and a great photo series of those birds. The photos Ugh. of all creatures in that magazine are and historically have been fantastic. Right. Shout out to Joel Satore for his photo arc on Instagram. Fun fact, the Pyrenean Desmond was the 8,000th animal to be photographed for the photo arc. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I have to say that I was definitely a National Geographic for the anthropology content, too, just to be clear. Mm -hmm. It was just such an easy way to be transported completely to a different world. And, you know, this was pre-internet and maybe pre-internet the way we know it today, where you could just find anything immediately. Right. So it would be such a great resource for just these fantastic high-resolution 
gorgeous photographs and interesting writing considering, you know, these creatures from a unique perspective or an insightful angle, if you will. So I just have to shout out to Nat Geo. It's a little bit of the OG, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's definitely an animal magazine that is worth discussing. Oh, yeah. And worth subscribing to. I mean, especially considering like the wide swath of things that they cover. There's stuff for all kinds of animal lovers, history lovers, lovers of this beautiful planet. It's just it's the best. Yeah, it's fantastic. Rock on Nat Geo. Yeah, good work, Nat Geo. So (laughs) I don't really have an animal magazine from my life other than Cat Fancy. I was pretty much just like mono animal mag girl. Fair. So I kind of had to use my Imer's organs to find something a little different online. And I came across, this is actually perfect given um, your animal today, Mike. This animal mag is called Practical Reptile Keeping. Um, It's a monthly mag and it debuted in 2009 by Kelsey Media in the UK. And some headlines include (laughs) the charm of crested geckos, meet the Peter Pan of the amphibian world, or what we've all been dying to know about, looking after Mediterranean spur-thighed tortoises. Wow. The title is a little misleading because it says practical reptile keeping, but they also have a banner across the top of every issue. It says snakes, lizards, tortoises, amphibians. What are they doing there? Amphibians and inverts. I was like, what is an invert? I think it's just like cute for invertebrate. Barf, barf. I know. Barf, barf, right? They didn't have enough space maybe across the top of the magazine to include invertebrates. But I see inverts and I'm like, are they referring to like that very, very, very outdated and offensive term for gay people? Oh, wow. (laughs) Like sexual inverts. Deep cut. Thank you. It's funny. I guess I think they mean invertebrates. So like the kinds of things you'd keep in like a home terrarium or aquarium or something i don't know unclear but the kinds of things they include we've got like species exposés care sheets they even have puzzles and then they refer to this thing as herping which i think is just like any herpological herpetological pursuit i don't know herpetology maybe it's just a cute way of saying that you're into herpetology i'm a herper i'm into herping it sounds like larping yeah and i bet there's some crossover between <laughs> the two <laughs> Without doubt. But interestingly, herpetology itself is inclusive. So it's like reptiles, amphibians, frogs, all of that stuff. Frogs are amphibians, obviously. It's like a cross-class study. Herping. <laughs> Herp it up. Herp it up. Great place to start would be practical reptile keeping. Subscribe today. Keep it herpy. So that's that. Thrilling, Meredith. Get herpy with it. Texana you. Texana we. Texana who. Texana me. Kingdom. Animalia. They're all around us. Phylum. Cordata. I'm okay with vertebrae. Class. Mammalia. Prized fur in Russia. Order. Euloptera. Not Soricomorpha, duh. Family. Telepidae, part of a mole miniseries. Genus. Desmana, they love a Russian river basin. Species. Desmana, Moscata. 
It's not a Cole Porter character. It's the Russian Desmond. Thank you for finally doing the Desmonds. I had to. Actually, when this first came up on our episode where you did the star-nosed mole. That's right. The Tulipidae, another Tulipidae. We had Anthony on, and you mentioned when you were doing your tax facts, you mentioned the Desmonds, and I lost my mind. But there is a creature out there named Desmond. But it's not like Desmond. Oh. D-E-S-M-O-N-D-S. That's not how it's spelled, but that's what I was assuming. But it's actually D-E-S-M-A-N-S. Desmonds. Desmonds. <laughs> and Anthony kept saying it sounds like a Cole Porter character, like Desmond. But I'm kind of obsessed with them. And then we, I know we've been on, we've had, it's been very mole heavy, very rodent heavy. But I just had to do it. I just had to get it out of the way. I really just had to scratch that Desmond itch. And it turns out they're kind of interesting and they're very cute, Mike. You should look at that picture I just sent you. I just did. They're adorable. They look like they're having a good laugh together. I know. And they're very plump. And they've got these very expressive mouths, as we will talk about. (laughs) Desmonds. The Russian Desmond, I should say. Okay. There's some interesting tax facts here. I hope tax facts is interesting for people. Write us and let us know. Tax facts, I feel like it can get murky sometimes, but animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Because I feel like this podcast could also just be called Mike and Meredith Wade Through Linnaean Taxonomy. <laughs> yeah. Mike and Meredith try to pronounce and understand Linnaean taxonomy. And it's just tough. So I I really spent a lot of time on this today just trying to like make heads or tails of this so obviously class mammalia blah 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 so we get to order eulipotyphla this is the order so this includes like shrews desmonds moles all those things but i would also come across some literature reading about these where they were labeled as soricomorpha but it turns out that that's incorrect soricomorpha is what would be considered polyphyletic So a polyphyletic grouping is when animals are grouped together, say, under the order of Soricomorpha, but they don't have a common ancestor, which kind of, to me, seems like, well, of course they should have that. So having the common ancestor would mean they're monophyletic, as we mentioned earlier, with the turtles. Right. That they're in a clade. Right. So Soricomorpha is actually, it was incorrect because it was polyphyletic. So I think Soricomorpha now just refers to shrews, where it turns out that like shrews and desmonds, for instance, didn't, they shouldn't be in the same order because they don't share a common ancestor, I think is what this means. Right. And then along with this, very interesting. So sometimes you run across an order called insectivora. It's like a passe order now because it, it was so polyphyletic. Like there was just you were grouping all these things together that had no common ancestry whatsoever. So you would have like Desmonds grouped in with aardvarks, for instance, because they sure. both eat insects. But that doesn't really make sense. Sure. So insectivora has now been essentially kind of like thrown by the wayside. And 
the order Yuli Patifla is the only, I guess, order now that still contains all those unclassified former insectivora specimens, if that makes sense. So there's still a bunch of specimens in Yuli Patifla that need to be reclassified, that they're kind of left over from this incorrect insectivora designation. Hmm. Again, if any of this is just not interesting, please let us know. Animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Moving down into family to Lipidae, which we've encountered before. This is where we are including moles, shrew-like moles, but not shrews. Shrews are not included anymore. No shrews. No shrews allowed. So we've got moles, shrew-like moles, and desmonds. Now we can just talk desmonds what we all tuned in for today. That's why I'm here. God damn it. That's definitely why, why I'm here. There's two species of Desmonds, the Russian Desmond, which is what we're talking about, and then also the Pyrenean Desmond. So the Russian Desmond hangs out in essentially kind of like water, river banks, freshwater pond areas, watersheds in like eastern, southeastern Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan. Whereas the Pyrenean, <laughs> Pyrenean Desmond, they live in the Pyrenees Mountains. So kind of the mountain range that is on the border between Spain and France. Hmm. It's kind of interesting. It's like, how do you have, and they actually look very similar. There's some differences between the two of them. They look very similar, but they're geographically inhabit very small areas. But those two small areas are not close together at all say where they are again essentially between spain and france in the pyrenees mountains Uh uh-huh and then also in kind of eastern southeastern russia ukraine was there historic distribution between those two regions that you're aware of i couldn't find anything it's very curious the fact that you've got these very similar creatures i mean they're the two species in the genus but that live in such specific locations neither of which are close to each other. That is interesting. So I'm not entirely sure how that happens. I'm sure there's a reason. Of course there is. But I couldn't find it in my research. And so unlike your turtles, which are so abundant, and therefore there's like a lot of information to be found about them, it's the opposite with both Desmonds. They're fairly hard to encounter. They're fairly hard to come across in the wild. So there's actually not a whole lot of information about them. Mm. But what we do know is that they're pretty cute, and I think they're much, no offense, I know this is definitely a value judgment, but I think they're a little bit more adorable than the naked mole rat, just saying. They are definitely more adorable than the naked mole rat. And part of me thinks, Meredith, what if the distribution of these creatures was through human trade and transportation? What if there was somebody that had a bunch of these cute little Desmonds as pets and, you know, kept them in their trading bag or whatever and (laughs) did some trade. And then all of a sudden these domesticated Desmonds got out into the wild or something like that. You know, part of me wonders. I mean, I love the idea of a domesticated Desmond, but I don't know that that ever. I don't know. I just don't know. Yeah. But it is. It's very curious. Brings a whole new meaning to double D's. That's the kind of double D I can get behind. So these guys, speaking of being super adorable, I would love to domesticate one because I think they're so cute. They're very cute. They're about like the size of a guinea pig. So of the tilapi day, they're going to be the largest. So they're not tiny like little moles are. Mm -hmm. So about the size of a guinea pig, about like eight inches. 
They have cone-like heads that kind of terminate at the end with a fun snout, which I'll talk more in detail about in a moment. So they're highly adapted for aquatic living. They've got long furless tails. And unlike the Pyrenean, Pyrenean Desmond, <laughs> who has kind of a rounded, more like kind of rat tail, the Russian Desmond has more of like a rudder-like tail. So it's a little bit flattened. And it helps them navigate through the water. Their front feet are partially webbed where their back feet are fully webbed. And now we can talk snouts. Thank God. Yeah, these guys are just so cute. Okay, so think about like the most <laughs> rudimentary teenage boy dick pic. Dick drawing. I shouldn't say dick pic, but dick drawing. Dick cartoon. It's just going to be full super bad. Yeah, but definitely not that detailed. Those were very detailed dicks. No, this is just think like the two balls and then like the oblong shape in between those two balls, right? Okay, wait a second. The one where the balls are on one side or the one no. where it's like kind of symmetrical. So it's like Yeah, ball, it's like the aerial view. Phallus <laughs> ball. Sure. Yes. Okay. So it's kind of like that in a way. Their noses. It's just kind of like two bulbous things on the end and then the long phallus part. So the two balls are at the end. So that's like the tip of the nose. So their nose starts small, close to their face, and then is bulbous at the end. Yeah, but like two two balls kind of at the end. And that's where like the little nostrils are. And it's so cute in videos of these guys. They like have control over the snout. Like they can wiggle it. They can pull it in. They can sniff around with it. It's very cute. When they're trying to eat, they kind of like draw it up close to their face. <laughs> So they have like full muscle, mus, full muscle, muscular control over their little snout. Kind of like elephants. Yeah, totally like elephants. And so th- what they do with it is they also like our turtle friends. They will kind of go to the bottom of kind of the river bank where they hang out, and they'll use it like a walrus their snout to like rough up all the shale and everything down there. Shale, silt, silt, silt. shale is rock. So just the same way that the walrus uses its vibrissae, its whiskers. Yeah, and actually the this snout too has vibrissae on it. Isn't that fun? Amazing. Desmond's and walruses sport vibrissae. How cool. Vibrissae friends. Friends forever. Yeah, and so these guys, they love to eat um, snails, crawfish, crayfish, however you say it, crawdaddies, other small amphibians, insects, super cute. And they also, similar to the to your star nose mole, they too have those Imers organs. I must want to say Elmers, like the glue. But the Imers organs are also on their um, snouts as well. So it's those highly innervated patches on the skin yeah, the, that help them sense. Right, the papillae. Yeah, it's just a, like part of just a highly sensitive, these nerve fibers, I guess you could say. Right. And is it the same as the star nose mole where their nose contains multiple of these Eimer's yeah. organs? Yeah. That's so interesting that it's such a sensory experience for them. Right. But I would argue again, I know I'm just really showing my uh, proclivity for Desmond's, but I think their nose apparatus is, again, a little bit cuter than the star nose mole. Just saying. I would agree completely with that. Just the way they wiggle it around. I mean, I can't get over it. It's so endearing. Okay. So they also have scent glands at the ends of their tails. And they actually look 
like muskrats as well. So muskrats, musk being the operative word there, inhabit similar habitats as well. So these animals that kind of create this oily secretion that usually comes from like around where the base of the tail is that they use in the Desmond's case, they kind of use it. Their sight is really poor, but their smell is so highly adapted. So they kind of leave their scent markings. And so it kind of helps them, you know, navigate and find their way back home. But also they cover themselves with this oil, this stinky oil to make their fur more um, waterproof because they spend so much time in the water. Crazy. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's all very weird. Is that like mink oil? Is that like where the concept of mink oil comes from? Is that it's like an oil? Are minks aquatic? They, well, they okay, so this is, um, I'll get to this. Minks as well as muskrats will come up momentarily here. Oh, okay. Let me just talk about this species' vulnerable status. So I mentioned that they have this fur that they like to cover in this stinky musk oil, scent oil. But their fur is actually very soft but durable. And so they were highly prized for their pelts. And so were kind of hunted very close to extinction And actually around like the 1920s, which I found very surprising, they started putting, um, I guess, laws in place to limit the hunting of Desmonds. But I think about what else was going on in Russia in the 1920s. And I'm like, wow, I'm surprised that Desmonds even like made a mark. (laughs) Surprised anybody was concerned about Desmond populations during the um, communist revolution. (laughs) Anywho. Maybe Marx and Stalin and all those guys really love Desmond's charismatic megafauna of the USSR. It's definitely not a megafauna, just for the record. Whatever, let me have this. I Look, I think that the Desmond sounds very charismatic, just for the record. Yeah, I mean, just look at these pictures of them, which I'll talk about again momentarily. Okay, so they were hunted for their pelts, but they were also hunted for their scent glands. So they would like dry them out and then use them as like protection against moths. Then they'd also be used in like perfumes and so, ugh, so weird. But actually now it's completely illegal to hunt Desmonds due to essentially draining these wetlands for agriculture. And also times they get caught in like illegal fishing nets. So people pull in their nets and then they'll just be like dead Desmonds in it. Oh. Oh. But also muskrats and minks were introduced for the fur trade, but actually they've kind of beat out the Desmonds for habitat in a lot of cases because both minks and muskrats are a bit more aggressive than our humble little Desmonds. And so they just get like forced out of their habitats for that reason. Sure. So, but as far as like mink oil and stuff like that, I'm not sure. I have used mink oil. My dad had like a big tub of it. (laughs) Gross. I hope that doesn't come from minks. I don't know. But just to get back to this charismatic nature of the Desmond, if you look up the pictures online, including the one I sent to Mike, there's just like two fat Desmonds that look like they're sharing a good laugh. There's another one with like a dragonfly just perched ever so perfectly on his little snout. And then there's another one. It's like a, a guy in a boat and he found a Desmond and is trying to like take it back to the Desmond's rightful home. The Desmond's just kind of like at the front of the little boat just with his paws up in the air and his snout up he just looks like he's just so pleased as punch just sniffing the air going on a joyful little boat ride they're so cute they sound really cute i'm really into desmonds and i'm very excited that we finally have gotten to learn about them me too i wasn't expecting them to be so fun they are super fun 
and I kind of want one. Oh, but one other fun thing I didn't mention about them that I kind of like, it's kind of like a spy or something, that their dens are actually built above ground, but they always have underwater entrances. Huh. Fun, right? They come in and out of their underwater homes. Yeah. That's very fun. Yeah. So that's the Desmond. I love the Desmond. Do we know about their like population numbers? Like, is this a common creature? Is there any sort of endangered aspect to it? Yeah, they're vulnerable. They're listed as vulnerable. So they're not quite too endangered. I think vulnerable is the stage prior to endangered. Sure. While they're not being hunted anymore, there's kind of that inadvertent habitat destruction as these wetlands are drained for crops and stuff like that. I see. Okay. Protect the Desmonds, everybody. Are they kept as pets? Did you say that? No, I don't believe so. They're pretty hard to encounter in the wild. They're hard to find because they spend so much time underwater and in their little dens. They're hard to spot. And because they live in such specific areas in the world, they're by no means cosmopolitan. It's just hard to get your peepers on one. Sure. Oh, this is all so interesting, Meredith. I wouldn't mind a Desmond pet. Would that even qualify as like an exotic pet? (laughs) I think so, yeah. I think it's really interesting that we both picked these creatures that kind of live this aquatic sort of river life. I know. I love that. It's really pretty fun. River pals. Yeah, Yeah. total river pals. Get some otters in there and... Then we're good to go. Well, shall we take a break? Let us. Brand Clubby is excited to introduce a new beauty product for elephants. Probiscidae Polish is an organic decorative nail product specifically designed for the digitigrade stance of modern elephants. You deserve to look pretty, and there's no better way to distinguish oneself than with gorgeous, eye-catching nail adornments. Stomp your way into the future. Stand out in your herd. Dare to be different. The special trunk brush is designed to be operated by the distinctive proboscis we all know and love. Apply polish to yourself or a friend. It's a great bonding activity for herd cohesion. Proboski Day polish is great for nails or tusks. This specially formulated organic product is safe for elephant ingestion. Beat the stampede to Brand Clubby's web portal, Beauty Edition. Supplies are limited and due to supply chain disruptions, This might be the last batch for a little while. Use code TUSK15 at checkout to save 10%. Ooh, do I smell old mesquite mare? I think you do, Meredith. Sprinkled over our hay? Mm, A little (laughs) flavor packet. Delicious! Man, hay's never tasted so good. Hey. Well, Meredith, the first question here is Eric from Idaho. He asks, what do caterpillars think about the current volatile state of the stock market? Whoa. I've been wondering this myself, Eric. I mean, I guess I feel like caterpillars think that the stock market is not the economy. True. Beyond that, I'm not really sure what caterpillars are thinking about, if I'm honest. They don't seem like they'd be adverse to investing, because I guess if you invest as a caterpillar and then you reap the rewards of that as a butterfly, maybe that's a kind of good state of affairs. But I'm not really sure if a caterpillar's investing strategy is more bullish or bearish. I guess... Yeah, I I wouldn't even know where to begin. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's species dependent and life cycle dependent. Right. 
I would think that they'd be trying to get like a quick buck. So maybe they're just figuring out a way to buy the dips and sell them and just kind of turn a little bit of a fierce profit. Sure. But I just imagine for a creature that's already got so much going on in its life with like the metamorphosis and everything. Yeah, they have a lot to worry about. Yeah, that maybe it's causing them some undue anxiety. Right. You know, I guess time will tell. We're starting to see the butterflies are coming out. It's that time. Yeah. But we'll see if the stock market has any direct correlation with the kinds of butterfly diversity we see. Yeah, I guess we're going to have to really take some notes, huh? Mm-hmm, I guess. So, I don't know. What's our fish position for Eric from Idaho? Is it um, that we don't know? I think so. I mean, maybe? Yeah, I'm not sure, Eric. I think that generally the caterpillars are a little not excited. Maybe they're stressed out by this current volatile state of the stock market. So I think yeah. the answer to your question, I think what caterpillars think about the current volatile state of the stock market is that they think it makes them nervous. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just assume it's not helping things. Yeah. I think that's a great assumption. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Samson from Philadelphia asks, what animal energy have you been channeling the most this week? I have just been like a little kitty cat. I'll just be, I mean, it's an obvious answer, but I felt like such a cat yesterday at the park, just kind of sitting, sniffing the air, feeling sleepy, but just being generally aware of my surroundings, taking it all in, enjoying bird watching. So I'm a cozy little kitty cat and I've been taking a lot of naps too. There's my answer. That's a nice answer. I mentioned them earlier. I think I've been channeling a little bit of Bowerbird energy right now. I love that. There's been a lot of redecorating at my apartment and a lot of moving of furniture pieces and reorganization and a sort of tidying of home situation and a streamlining of home situation going on. I like that. A lot of kind of clearing out trash. I guess that's the opposite of what Bowerbirds do. Normally they bring trash (laughs) into their environment, but they'll arrange it and they'll push things out that they don't want. So I guess one man's trash is a Bowerbird's treasure, potentially. Perfect. But uh, that's kind of been my journey, I guess, is that it's been a lot of like reorganization, moving bookcases around, Mm. organizing desks, experiencing new internet routers, that kind of work, you know? Yeah. Well, it seems like channeling the Bowerbird for that is a a great idea because it seems like they do it with, with gusto and alacrity and... Might as well approach a, a DIY or home improvement project with gusto and alacrity, right? Affirmative. Yeah. All right. So we've got Bowerbird and Cozy Little Kitty Cat. Ding, ding, ding. Ding-a-ling-a-ding-dong. So Eileen from Queens asks, who is your animal hero? AKA, if you were Mariah Carey and you wanted to rewrite the hit song Hero to be about any animal where you replace hero with your animal name, what animal would you pick? Easy, the wolf. The gray wolf specifically, the wolf. It would just be called wolf. When a wolf comes along with the strength to carry on. Perfect. Fits beautifully. Yeah. 
And that makes sense for you because you do you do love the wolf. Yeah, it's my favorite animal ever. Like, there's no argument. Plus, it's just so majestic and it works as a heroic animal. Yeah. I think because I just am so enamored with them, I'm going to go with the Desmond. When a Desmond comes along, the Desmond lies in you. I'd say that picking a wolf is a particularly intense choice for a Mariah Carey song, considering that her fans are her lambs. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's hilarious. I'm still committing to my answer. I think you should. But I just have to say that I'm aware of that. Gosh. If I had fans, I would want them to be called Desmonds. Denizens of Desmonds. Shout out to all my Desmonds. I love you. Well, yeah, so that's it. Yeah. Wolf Desmond. When a Desmond comes along. <laughs> Great. Well. I'm never going to hear that song the same way, Meredith. Thank you. Yes, that's exactly. Thank you, Eileen, for completely restructuring our Mariah Carey musical experiences. All right. Well, keep those questions coming. Animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, that's our fish position. Yeah. Great, everybody. Have a Perfect. good week. Bye. Bye. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal Fan Club.